Welcome to Single Serving Cinema with Tim Matei, a podcast that looks at one critical scene in a movie every other week. We explore how the scene is constructed, what the scene achieves, and what it can tell us about the movie as a whole. I'm Tim. I'm Tay. Welcome to our bite-sized episode. Uh, we try and do this once a year, at least, and uh, I think we picked the right movie at the right time to kind of go with uh, our normal programming, Tim. This, is, this was kind of a nice fit for us. Yeah, absolutely. We're talking about um, one of the biggest movies of the year, Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer. Uh, three hours on the dot, uh, opus on uh, on the figure himself, J. Robert Oppenheimer. And I think you're right, Taylor. Like it, um, I was thinking about just as we were getting ready here, in August we're doing this revenge theme month, and Oppenheimer's kind of a revenge story, just told from the, the point of view of the victim. Y- yeah, and not to mention we have the same director in place for both these movies too, and... Uh, mm-hmm. to kind of reveal behind the curtain a bit, recording both the same day, you know, pretty fun. Yeah, and I'm actually, I we didn't talk about this, but I'm not sure. Are we going to just try and drop this bite-sized bonus as soon as it's ready to go so it's probably out before Memento? I think so. Okay, so we're doing this in the right order, you know, fingers crossed, asterisk, everything, <laughs> you know. We'll, we'll see what happens in the editing and process and things like that, but right now, yeah, this is coming out. Uh, before our Memento episode on Wednesday, and uh, we're recording it first, too, just to sort of get some high-level thoughts, some impressions, stuff like that. Uh, I, I did lie by using our opening little little uh, speech there. We're not actually going to cover a scene in these bite-sized bonuses going forward. We think that's maybe a little unnecessary, uh, especially when, like, we can't necessarily – we can't really pick it apart. I was lucky enough to catch this movie twice, mm-hmm. uh, and Tay, you said you've seen it once. I think we both saw it in the ideal format the first time, which is um, IMAX, proper IMAX presentation, 70-millimeter film. Uh, and, I mean, if you want to start off on high level or on positives, I mean, what an astounding presentation. Were you also there in, in, at the Mississauga one? I was in Vaughn, actually. Which is oh okay no if, right. uh, not to <laughs> compare but a little bit bigger of a screen Tim in Vaughn so <laughs> okay well so be it well so you know what um I know you said start it with positives but as soon as the movie came on the screen uh, so f- for context I took my dad who not to get into it he has like a bit of concussion history so h- him seeing big movie on big screen was like kind of out of the question for a few years so i wanted that mm. but I'm, i want to take him to like these big screen experiences so um yeah i took him to this and instantly i know i noticed it and i haven't heard anybody else talk about it yet but the i could see the flicker of the film stock the, very I think very distinctly. intentionally nolan nolan wants that strobing that's how you tell it's it's film and, right and so right away my 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 heart sank i was like uh-oh this is gonna be trouble for my dad because it's, already, it's three hours visually right? obliterating yeah. me already but i yeah. actually sunk right into the movie about five minutes in i kind of was able to forget about that it was really only in the black and white scenes where they had the extremely high highlights uh mm-hmm. where it was very bright and those were like literally strobing at me the whole time yeah. and i think your your eyes could just adjust and get used to it but the first two minutes i was genuinely worried for my viewing experience after that what an astounding time in the theater this is like the dream come true scenario for people like you and i tim where we just mm-hmm. long for non-superhero properties to be put on a big screen and displayed the way they're supposed to be displayed and for this to be like an occasion right this is an event screening now in in the world and that's a really cool phenomena that kind of happened out of nowhere 
it's like it, it i mean it's a testament again we've talked about we've talked about nolan in the past yeah. and um his sort of like his command and his brand at this point it's wild that like this movie it's a docudrama it's three hours long um got this kind of event viewing phenomenon and barbie is certainly a part of that like that's real lightning in a bottle that you they decided to do them on the same day and then internet meme culture sort of latched on to it and i i I think it's a wonderful result of that phenomenon because barbie broke records oppenheimer broke imax records and i think generally again if you look at its subject matter on paper the amount of money it has made and will continue to make through a very dry august um, is is pretty fantastic and it, it, it was honestly like I felt you know I mean I think this is the right forum I can I can feel like I'm in a safe space to express this here yeah. I was really touched I was really touched by like people that I knew or when I was looking for tickets at that like it's difficult to get tickets to these things and like a hundred percent like in IMAX 70 millimeter you know me and me and my brother and a friend of mine drove about 70 minutes to get there which I actually I didn't realize it was this side of Toronto and that was actually, I think, a very reasonable drive for such an, ama- an amazing presentation. Yeah, my drive home but was I a nightmare. Friends, yeah, I had friends who were going to see, like, standard, like, cropped, you know, not the full experience at, like, local, not very well-run movie theaters here in our area. And, like, they were having to sit in less-than-ideal seats because they wanted to see it and there weren't a lot of left. So I think I think this is like it in general it's a it's a great summer for movie theaters. And I think a great proof of concept number one that like Oppenheimer especially uh, of course it's Nolan's name and it's this great a great marketing campaign dwarfed only by Barbie's marketing campaign but like largely original takes on established things whether whether it's you know American history or you know the brand that is Barbie. Um I th- I think it's really special. Um I feel bad for my previously mentioned Mission Possible yeah. uh, Part 7, Part 2, which just had its lunch eaten by deciding to come out a week before Oppenheimer and try to share those screens. That was, I think it was a bad call. And we said the opposite when we were talking ahead of time. Like, feels easier to bet on a nice, straightforward action movie like Mission Impossible than it is a biography of uh, J. Robert Oppenheimer. And uh, that was a bad bet. Well, the Barbenheimer phenomena really changed everything that I could have predicted about theater culture because, like you said, we had tentpole movies come out this summer. I, I recently read an article about how much Disney has lost already this year on their big tentpole pictures. Uh, I think it started with like the Ant-Man, third, mm-hmm. like the Did third movie well. of that yeah. series that came out this year, which I totally forgot about even. And then like all I the way... I saw it and I forgot to. Yeah, like <laughs> all the way up to, uh, I think they just made that mo- that animated film, Strange Worlds, something like that? No, that was last year. You think oh, Elemental. Oh, okay. And I've heard just like that they're just suffering massive losses at the box office right now. I think Elemental is underperforming compared to Pixar, but it's performing pretty well, all the other things considered, because there's almost nothing in theaters for kids other than, like, Long Tail Spider-Verse and maybe just this week as we record the new Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Right, right. So as I understand it, Elemental week after week was having a nice performance, but again, it's no inside out. It's, you know, it's not quite there. But just hearing that, people weren't that interested in say the Indiana Jones movie, which also Disney put money mm. into and lost yep. is losing money yep. on currently. 
They haven't even made okay, their budget the back at the box office. Movies ever made. Yeah. Yeah, I think we mentioned though, like it's it, it's one of the most expensive movies made in in some time. Yes, I I want to um, say since like Infinity War or maybe Star Wars. I don't know. It's it's been it several right. years. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, just the fact that Indiana Jones, uh, Mission Impossible, and all these other big movies that have tried to enter that market in this summer have just failed and then all of a sudden we get the barbenheimer weekend and it just changes everything that i thought i knew about what people wanted in the theater experience because everybody just flocked to see barbie and oppenheimer's most people on the same day which i didn't do personally i still haven't seen barbie i fully intend to by the way but i didn't feel like it was fair to give them put them both on the same day and i still stand I by that i didn't want to do them same day yeah, I, I didn't do them say either. I wouldn't have been able to. And for both of us, summer's a pretty busy time. A lot of extra work going around and some of the some of the side jobs that we have. Um, but I don't think I like I think it would have been way more of like a gimmick to be like, yeah, we're gonna do both in the same day. And like whatever the second one is, I won't be fully focused on it because I'll still be thinking about the first one. Yeah, exactly. And th- yeah. T- drastically different movies too. Nevertheless, like th- that's my opinion on the, on the phenomena, but. I think it's amazing that people did this. I think it's wonderful that people spent money to go to the theaters because they felt that it would be a worthwhile experience to do so. And I really hope that this opens people's eyes to like the theater experience again. And I hope it opens the Mm -hmm. studio's eyes to what they can do if they actually dedicate resources and good, creative, skilled people in prominent roles to make these products like Christopher Mm -hmm. Nolan and for like like Gerwig, Gre- yeah. Greta Gerwig, right? Like you need you need mm-hmm. very talented people. The only reason I had faith in the Barbie movie from its announcement was that Greta Gerwig was attached, yeah. and that yeah. was the only reason it had my money from so far out. And same with Oppenheimer. If you told me James Mangold was directing this, it'd be like, okay, <laughs> maybe I'll watch that. Maybe it might be fun. Yeah, yeah. it'll be it'll be like an like a, an actiony biopic. Cool, um, mm-hmm. but. When you hear Nolan's gonna do it, you just you just kind of I don't know about you. I'd let my guard down and I just kind of walked in and I was like, whatever he gives me, I'm gonna take. Yeah, like there, I I you know I have criticisms of virtually every Nolan film sure. and yep. some of the things that he does, but like he has developed his brand, his reputation, into ensuring that he is event viewing, and he's pretty much the only person doing that, right? Like I know there there are other. Um, like iconic cinematic authors like you know a Wes Anderson movie you know Asteroid City was coming out that kind of thing but I don't think there's quite as much of it we got to see our Asteroid City in the theater right it's just kind of like there's there's an echelon of people like you and me Tay people in our community where it's like you have to see Oppenheimer in 70 millimeter IMAX or it's not worth to see it but then the entire general public was still like, well, I got to go. I got to be a part of this conversation. You know, I have to be able to, to say something about it. And like ever, I, you know, I went to two weddings in the past week and a half. And like at a certain point, it would come up. Someone would ask either, have you seen Barbie or Oppenheimer? And then everyone would give a report on whether which one they had seen and which one they have yet to see. Or if they did it the same day, like they're all in the same breath and same sentence with one another. Um, and I, I'm particularly curious as to how like studio execs, cinema marketing people are going to try and reverse engineer this yes. for the future. Yeah. Cause I don't, it doesn't strike me as an easy target to hit to be like, okay, so it's gotta be high summer release, 
um, it has to be movies that do not really overlap in audience too much, but have like that ineffable thing that the internet would latch on to where they're like, isn't it funny that it's like a super serious like docudrama and then like a popcorn candy like uh, like pop flick, right? So I don't know how you do that. Like usually like scheduling movies is a matter of like, don't put it near any other movie that might eat its lunch that might someone will choose to take it over it. So I don't know how you like be like, no, we're going to put our movie out on the same day as this other highly anticipated one with this like complimentary subject matter. I, I think we're going to see some face plants and uh, not not to be macabre about the box office and its health and these things that we care a lot about. It will be fun to see like maybe DC and Marvel try to put out a movie on the same day and try to and try to manufacture a Barbenheimer and it's not going to work at all. Um, so. It's that's a, that's what I foresee. It's a great point. I, I wonder how much they're going to invest in trying to duplicate this scenario because I can't imagine there's been a more successful box office story in the past decade. Decade. Yeah. Yeah. Right. This is like this is probably the, the key phenomenon of whatever you want to call this era. Like you you yeah, probably this could change like, everything. And we're like the big the biggest, most notable thing probably since uh avengers endgame or if you want depending on how you want to look, look at that prism avengers itself where they pulled off that all these single movies feed into this one movie and it somehow worked and it made a ludicrous amount of money um this yeah. is definitely a new chapter and to your point about this being designated for the big screen experience i don't know how nolan was able to like i know he's been a huge advocate for big screen experience but i don't know how he finally got through to the public that it matters so much to go see his movies in theaters because everybody just understands this now and it just must be the the overbearing nature of nolan's argument that he's never really backed down from i just feel like people have finally like figured it out oh yeah all of his other movies have been really pleasurable viewing experiences in the theater so maybe i should just get ahead of the curve and go see this one mm-hmm. i think like since inception there's yeah. been this saturation of the same message which is that like this is made for movie theaters they're important for these reasons every movie he he bumps up the ratio to which it's filmed in imax moving steadily towards like near 100 percent to the to the extent that like we i mean we talked our bite-sized bonus last year was about nope where they did some innovations with imax cameras yeah that's right uh, having simultaneous ir recordings so they could do their day for night sequences in a different way um and i mean with oppenheimer uh, i believe they had to from scratch develop the black and white film for it because no one had ever needed black and white imax film before because it was kind of antithetical to its purpose like if you're yeah. doing a nature documentary why would you want to artfully show you know, a colorful octopus in black and white <laughs> or, or a starry scape. Um, so, you know, it's these things or like, you know, on, in, in Dunkirk where it's like, well, we need to figure out a way to mount an IMAX camera to the outside of this, uh, this model plane, you know? Yeah. Um, he so he, he continues pushing it and yeah. Continues to do things that no one else really has the audacity to try. And part of that is the creative freedom he's been given because of his clout and his ability to make movies under such um, restraint not restraint that's not the right word but under such conditions I guess he mm-hmm. he is continuously shown that he knows how to make a budget work for his movies I don't think I've ever heard stories of him going like massively over or like really costing himself in like a way that he couldn't overcome so 
I give Nolan full credit for like the reputation he was able to build that drew audiences to go see this movie. Um, I know our episode is on Oppenheimer, not Barbie. So when we when I see Barbie, maybe we can have a bit more of a discussion on like what yeah. it is about that movie that made this such a phenomena. But uh, maybe we should dive into Oppenheimer. Yeah, I did just want to give an update. It is as of yesterday of this recording. Uh, it's at five hundred and fifty million. Oh yeah. Um, which is just, it's phenomenal, right? Yes. I don't think it's going to necessarily get that billion, but I also appreciate that. I don't think Nolan's out there telling people, this is one of your billion dollar properties. Um, there are other reasons that, that, that studios work with him, but... Um, no, I think Dunkirk yeah, was right, around 500 million, and I think yeah. Interstellar was 900 million. I don't think it hit billion, but like his movies have been yeah. so high in the in the hundreds yeah, ten, of millions and it's a different yeah ten it's a different form of calculus because of when it came out yes uh, you kind of yeah. got to look at that one in a bubble but uh anyway you're right we uh we're doing this a bite-sized bonus we're trying to hold ourselves to a certain time frame here so we should talk about the movie itself um yeah tay I don't, I don't know like outside like it's it's almost difficult to talk about like the 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 visuals in any meaningful way i feel like because like they are such a given it was like, we know we're going to see the bomb. We're going to see these effects. And they didn't use any CGI for any of the bomb stuff. That Still was all like creative in-camera stuff. You know, like I read I read up on it afterwards. They had like, because there are a lot of like sequences where they're like, it looks like you're zoomed in on like, um, you know, neutrons hitting each other. Uh, atoms being split. And it's like, Colliding you know, particles. they fired. Yeah, they like fired like chunks of phosphorus at one another in super shallow like macro focus they tilt shifted to make it look small um they they created like arcing waves between two points of like electrodes to show like light like to see the inside of oppenheimer's mind where he's thinking about how light is both a particle and a wave right when he's sort of wrestling with these chaotic quantum concepts that make up our world um so the 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 visuals like i don't have anything interesting to say other than like they were incredible and like there is to be clear uh this is a spoilers episode we're not talking about it very long but i don't think we're going to keep anything off the table yeah nothing's off the table um, on this one lot lots of people have seen it so like um what was i gonna say there there is a very specific direction made with the bomb test which is that all the audio drops out until the shockwave hits the people at the furthest observation camp which is one of those um not necessarily like right on the tip of your tongue, but as soon as you see it happening, you're like, of course, this is the way to do this. Like this, this is, it's, it's obvious in retrospect, in retrospect, but um, it's, it's innovative the minute, the minute you see it. Right. It's that very special balance. Going into the movie, I really expected to just kind of have what little hair I have be blown back by the sound of the bomb going off. But mm -hmm. that was far from the case. Uh, the creative, the creative way of filming the Trinity test really stands out it's one of the thing scenes that i keep replaying in my mind and it's not even the actual explosion itself it's the it's the prelude to it it's the, everyone gearing up and be getting ready mm -hmm. to see what they they've been working on this whole time um and and that goes i guess hand in hand with my thoughts on the rest of the movie it was ever it was the procedural aspects of this film that really stood out and then you get this result in the trinity test that just feels so satisfying when it goes off silently you see everyone's reaction, and then you see the shockwave hitting everybody in different ways. It really mm -hmm. did feel complete and thorough and satisfying. 
And then I think the rest of the movie is pretty divisive, actually, after the Trinity test. I think a lot of people thought yeah. it dropped off or got boring or was irrelevant to his story, maybe. Or maybe the pers he didn't have the perspective or in like Oppenheimer himself wasn't a as much a part of the rest of the story. So maybe people lost focus yeah. there. Yeah, it's been very interesting. Like, I've, I, I'm very mixed on this movie script. Um, Script-wise, yeah, it's a very, I'd say it so. Bit off, it bit off a lot to chew, and I think to, um, you know, mixed results. Mm -hmm. um, but I've had, I find this movie fascinating regardless of, of any faults that I perceive in it, and I've also really enjoyed the conversations it struck up, and it brought something to light that, like, uh, comes in, into play every now and then, and even whether or not it's a valid consideration and criticism of a movie is up for debate. But things that are extrinsic or intrinsic to the movie. So I, I've seen this movie with people who are very disappointed because they're like, why was the last third about his Q clearance and not about the Japanese? Not about accountability to the military. Not about and it's like, well, his name is 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 the title. This is his and like this movie is intensely from his perspective. And seeing it a second time, like really really hammer that home because you got you got Hoyt Van Hoytema. Uh, mm -hmm. shooting this just one one of the best in the game right now um and there's these very intentional i think not necessarily strictly correct um focus uh, uh matters of focus in a lot of the movie where like someone's nose will be in focus not their eyes things like that and when you start to look at it through the lens of like you are experiencing this conversation from robert oppenheimer's point of view not first person because that'd be a little too direct a little too hokey sure but the fact that you're just you're standing next to this person and you're not always looking someone in the eye. Sometimes you're looking at a different part of their face. Sometimes you're looking off in another direction. Oppenheimer may have had antisocial tendencies anyway. Um, so when you really lock in on that perspective and when you know the story, it's like, yeah, he was barely involved in selecting the targets. He was involved in the in the decision to drop it all. He never traveled to Japan until like this, the late 60s. Um, and like, I mean, there's a, there's, I think a point that really locks this all in is where, um, uh, Cerber, Robert Cerber, I believe comes back from Japan after interviewing Hiroshima survivors. He took a bunch of photos and they show you Oppenheimer in like this slideshow presentation where they're showing the effects of the bomb and he won't look at the photos of the victims. So the movie doesn't show you the photos of the yes, victims. Yes. Yeah. Even the, and it's these even when the te like they drop the bombs on Japan, he only sees it through the TV screens. It's not like there's more he to it. He only gets the radio, the radio update, right? Oh, okay. I thought there was he, a TV. He was moment. like waiting for he was waiting for like Matt Damon to call him and say like, "Hey, we're about to drop the bomb, just so you know." Yeah. And like he's losing sleep, he's staying up, and and they're like, "It's not till tomorrow." He's like, "It is tomorrow in Japan, mm -hmm. right?" Um. So it's limited to his perspective, and it brought up when I was talking with people the idea of like. Can you criticize this movie for not like I I don't I don't even know what leg to stand on there because like it was clearly marketed it's about Oppenheimer and then so like I think that the last part's so divisive because it's like why is this the most monumental part of this guy's story is whether he loses his Q clearance or not um and not like the effects of the bomb or the long-term effects uh but, but I also think it's framed it's framed very intentionally the opening quote is about um uh Prometheus and that he was tortured for eternity. And the so I think the final third is more Nolan saying, like, Oppenheimer chose to engage in his own torture. This is how 
struggled he is. And I, I, I find that all fascinating. I think my main point of conflict with the movie itself is that I don't find Oppenheimer as fascinating as Nolan. And there's like, you can feel the director leaning in on some moments where it's like, how about this? And I'm like, I don't know, man, <laughs> if you say so, right? Yeah, ultimately it comes down to personal opinion and personal interest in what Nolan has to say about the character because he doesn't he's not like tricking us and he's not doing anything deceptive with this film. It's about Oppenheimer. We've already talked about how it's a very personal perspective of the character himself and it's a very insular movie in that regard, but that's a very specific choice that we as an audience member can have problems with, but Nolan shouldn't be faulted for that other than the sense that Nolan wants his movies to be seen by a lot of people and I always feel that certain directors need to compromise in order to make their visions reach the masses and some who don't end up being the best filmmakers some who do end up being some of the best blockbuster filmmakers so if Nolan really rides that line and this movie in maybe more so than ever before because of how many people actually are going to see this over say something like Dunkirk which I think has similar aspects of this but mm-hmm. in terms of like I don't know why people would be so incredibly interested in this story but the craft and everything that goes into it sure um, but yeah Nolan I, I, I have no problem with him following the Oppenheimer story to its realistic end but he did miss the mark on like keeping the audience fully involved in the story the whole way through, I feel. And part of that comes down to that script. Part of it comes down to like the way the acts are laid out. But for me personally, I had a great time watching this movie. I liked the last hour of the movie. I really liked how it kind of unfolded mm-hmm. like a court case drama. Cause I like stuff like that. I just yeah. like procedurals. I like mm-hmm. going when people are going through information and comparing notes and cross examining mm-hmm. like, yeah. I, I love all that kind of stuff in film form. So that that's for me like, okay, but I understand why a ton of people fell off in the last hour. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, in the end, I have a ton of respect for if you start this movie with the idea of like, we are telling Oppenheimer's story, not the bomb story, yes. which I think may be the most critical marketing failure. I don't even know if it's a failure. I don't know. If, I don't know if it's fair to say that. I know it's called Oppenheimer. Expected dude. different. It's called Oppenheimer. It's not called the bomb. Like, it's not yeah but like that's what you know him for and i mean to be fair i've been reading the book that it's based on and like i've had to put down the book for like a week at a time every now and then because i got so frustrated about it being so much about whether or not he was a communist and so little about the bomb but you know so like all you have all these caveats but our brains still work the way they work Mm -hmm. i still have a ton of respect for the fact that he did not mitigate to what i'm sure uh, test audiences and executives said which was like can we see japan yeah. Can we see the effects? And he was like, that's not what this is. And I think a weaker director or someone who was, who had to play ball a little bit more, there would have been, if not a um, a depiction of the bombing in Japan, which would have been ghoulish, to be clear. I'm glad that that didn't exist. I agree. Some sort of like stock footage at the end of Hiroshima or even like there are things in Prometheus where they talk about how the U.S. government had intercepted... Um, coded transmissions in japan where japan was saying we're ready to surrender we just don't want to give up our government um and essentially the the truth being that they dropped the bomb on japan the u.s government did number one to get an unconditional surrender and number two to defeat japan before russia entered the theater that's right um which are super dark things that oppenheimer was not aware of so they're not in the movie 
even though like I wonder could they be fit into the Strauss story the straws storyline yeah. i'm not sure we get enough of and, and like, I, perspectives yeah. that it could fit yeah right but uh i mean yeah so all of that i find to be a fascinating debate and that's why i saw this movie more than once that's why i like hearing what other people have to say about it mm-hmm. and what they feel they they wanted to see but they didn't um the more abject problems i have with this movie very briefly are just how like florence Pugh and emily blunt's characters are treated they both have like two high profile scenes um, which strike me as like honestly like fairly embarrassing from a script writing perspective. Like the the um, I am become death destroyer of worlds is poetically put into a sex scene with Florence Pugh, which just kind of felt like a big swing. And then also Nolan reacting to people saying his movies are sexless. So here's a sex scene. Like I don't know. I enjoy a sex scene. I, I think they can be very effective storytelling tools. We talked about it in History of Violence really fell flat for me and then emily blunt's triumphant scene where she criticizes a guy's grammar like it felt like a joke to me like the way the triumphant music would swell up around her as she's doing nothing of consequence in this court trial i thought it was a shame for both of them Hmm. Um, i thought their characters were underserved even even to the degree that they are simply being reflected in the perspective that oppenheimer would have had of them which is as lovers and wives and partners at best you know well, that's kind of the way I interpreted it, and I thought that kind of fit with Nolan's coldness towards his characters in general, and especially to his mm-hmm. female characters in his films. Uh, I don't think he's written a great female character since The Prestige in 2006, or yeah. 2005, sorry. Mm-hmm. So I, I really wasn't going in with high expectations for either of those two characters, even though they're played by wonderful actors. Um, mm-hmm. I thought Emily Blunt was almost too distant and unrelatable in the movie in general so i didn't i couldn't latch on to her very much even though they tr- i felt like they tried and i didn't think it worked um it, it felt like a lot of tell not show like i was like there i bet there's some very interesting scenes between like kitty and her husband like arguing but being partners and like criticizing yeah. and supporting and they just sort of like clearly hinted at those where he's like we walk through fire or like she picks him up after that's right after gene tatlock died and I'm like, I would have loved more of that. I know it's a three-hour movie, yeah. you know? Um, I will say that I liked the way that Nolan used sex in the movie in that courtroom moment where, like, they had Florence Pugh, yes. like, on him in, from Emily Blunt's perspective. Um, once again, kind of going against what we said, it breaks that Oppenheimer's perspective there for a moment. A rare time, yeah. yeah. Or, like, again, is that him thinking about it, how she sees it? It's it's hard to parse, but right. I agree. Like, every now and then Nolan will swing big like that. Like, that's pretty artistic. Like, formal reality break. Yeah, yeah. And I, I actually, I think that's cool. I like when, that like... That scene was really cool to the me. The rooms start vibrating, mm-hmm. right? And, like, lights creeping through the walls when Oppenheimer's kind of losing his mind a little bit. Which is very... I, I thought all that was really neat stuff. Come to think of it, there's, like, a lot of almost, like, uh elevated elements like elevated reality moments that nolan incorporates from his other films like say interstellar mm. like almost like the rattling of the rocket yeah, ship shaking book self and or or and like i mean Inception. black and white and color for different perspectives like memento there's a lot yeah. of nolan's career in this movie yeah it, and um, when people kept saying that like uh i saw one of the first screenings i was there like the second day it was open so i still heard a number of people come out and say like oh this is like an amalgamation of nolan's ideas and way he makes movies all in one and i don't know if i fully felt that but there's definitely like a lot of pieces here and there i don't think this is his opus film like i maybe went in expecting it to be i think it's a really good direction for him to go in 
Um, but I still feel like there's I, some pieces missing from like the soul of the movie, and I don't blame anybody yeah. for not that being able to latch on to it like I did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and yeah. So to wrap up, I would I would agree that I think like one of the better um, lessons or or things suggested by this movie is that like he's still pushing himself. He's trying exactly, things. Exactly. Yeah. I mentioned some things that he tries that I don't think work entirely. I think that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> I don't need like, and, and I don't, I, I also think there's a lot of, I talked to people where they're like, I was just so let down by the movie. I'm like, just to give everyone some advice, don't go in any movie being like, I've been thinking about this movie for a year. It better be a five star movie. Yeah. It's really that's hard not to do help that you. to a movie. <laughs> right? you, you'll never be yeah. impressed by anything. If you go in with that perspective, I try and, always lower my expectations even when you have like a pretty like pretty flawless filmmaker in Nolan like I, I've liked every one of his mm-hmm. movies with the exception of maybe one or two and I, I just I still was able to be like okay but it's still a movie about this character who I don't really care all that much about like from a personal perspective so like whatever he gives me I'm just gonna take it at face value and I'm gonna judge it accordingly to that really like people and their expectations can really get ahead of them on especially when it's like we're, our, we're often our own worst enemy when it comes to art yeah and when it's like i haven't seen a movie in theaters in a year and i'm gonna go see this movie because everyone's saying it's good i feel like that's a, a recipe for disaster in expectations yeah so yeah no i mean yeah fascinating movie um yeah no, by no means perfect but like we talked about it. it had it had success in our culture success in our theater economy and uh, i think it's a success in in the arc of nolan's career just makes me further excited for tenet 2 which is coming <laughs> up next i can't wait <laughs> the most hotly anticipated sequel of all time no i'm kidding who knows what he'll do i'm sure he's got an idea right now well he didn't have this idea until he read the book so yeah, but you know, speaking of Tenet, and we can cut this off because we're already over time, uh, Rob Pattinson gave him a collection of Oppenheimer speeches as the rap gift on Tenet. Because uh... he said, Ted, Pattinson's uh, opinion of Tenet was that it was about what if you could uninvent like the worst invention that ever affected mankind, and it made him think of Oppenheimer. And, I mean, Oppenheimer's mentioned in the Tenet script, too. Um, so... Who knows? But maybe we have uh, our good old boy Robert Pattinson to thank. Um, That's pretty cool. With that, I'll I'll stop talking about Oppenheimer. I think I talk more to you. If you have any wrap up thoughts, Tay, by all means. Oh no, I I that's pretty much all I needed to say about the movie. Um, but if anything, just a shout out to the amazing cast and the people who made this movie. Like technically, it's it's a masterpiece in my opinion on a technical mm-hmm. scale. Um, yep. great theater experience, cultural phenomena. Um, wonderful performances throughout. I think it's Robert Downey Jr.'s best. I think Benny Safdie was awesome in so it. So nice to see him. As as I I believe that uh, RDJ was phenomenal as Iron Man. I think there's a lot of charisma and a lot of a lot of under the surface work at play in that performance. But it's really nice to see him in a different movie. It's nice to see him not be Robert Downey Jr. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, yeah. that's a that's a, our episode on Oppenheimer. Thanks for catching this bite size episode, all you out there. Yeah, thanks for tuning in, everyone, and uh, we'll see you soon for Memento and the rest of our Revenge Month. Kaboom! Boom!